Good morning. Let's open up with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for caring for us. We thank you for providing for our needs. We thank you for sustaining us in the past week. Indeed, all of our lives brought to this moment. And we thank you for this day that you've set apart, that we may worship and rest. We do pray that our attention would be drawn up to the heavenly places where Christ is seated at your right hand, where he is the mediator of the new covenant, where he intercedes for us even now. We pray that you would bless us in this day, that we would leave behind the burdens of sin, the burdens of failure, uh, the weariness of life in some respects. We do pray that we would be lifted up today and encouraged. Indeed, this is a feast day, and may we feast upon you. We ask as we open up your word that you'd give us clarity, that you'd give us insight, and more importantly, most importantly, that we would love you more and serve you with fervor and diligence. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. Starting in verse 1, Acts chapter 11. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, No, not so, Lord, for nothing uncommon or unclean has come uh, at any time has entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up into uh, heaven again. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who said to him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? And when they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the church, to the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came 
and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them that they uh, encouraged them that all with one purpose of heart that they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed, or Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Abagus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout the whole world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Acts chapter 11, for those who just came in. We, of course, just finished Acts chapter 10, where uh, Peter has brought the gospel to the Gentiles for the first time. We're not talking about just Samaritans, we're talking about those who are genuinely outside. And now, he has to account for himself. And he goes back to Jerusalem. Notice that in verse 1, the apostles and the brethren, I want to say more on this in just a minute, the way that this is framed. But they hear of the Gentiles receiving the word of God, and some of the circumcision contend with them about this event. Now, we should stop and first recognize that as Jews, they were all circumcised. So this phrase, this idea, this, this designation is clearly referring to those who were particularly zealous for the Old Testament. Remember that there were Pharisees who believed. Remember from chapter 6 when the uh, deacons are appointed that there are many great number of priests believe. So this is very likely the very zealous. Uh, and they are responding fairly harshly here. You went in and ate with these men. What are you doing, Peter? What are you doing? They clearly don't have all of the information. We'll talk about that in just a moment as well. And their main objection, of course, is they ate and by extension had close contact with those whom the law had physically separated. And we've talked about this before. I'm not going to go back over this. But they are unclean, unseparated men. You went in and had fellowship with them. Bad, bad, bad from their perspective. But as I also said, and I will recall again to bring to your mind here, stated last week, that the Old Testament laws were for the church under age. It was a child's religion to a childish people. This is not me saying this because I don't like Judaism. This is how Paul describes in Galatians chapter 2 what the purpose of the Old Testament law was. It was a schoolmaster. It was a tutor to bring them up into maturity. And so in some respects, we should give them, we should be careful not to judge them too harshly. They've been in this environment for a long time, and they are responding very much like a child would respond. What are you doing? We have laws. We have these things. And so they are responding negatively simply uh, out of their own custom and tradition. So we should not judge them too harshly, at least at this point, and especially when we see their response. 
Now, in verses 4 through 16, which we're not going to cover in great detail this morning because we covered that last week, Peter simply recounts the full story to them. It's very likely that most of them did not have the full story. They just heard that Peter, and, and notice here, that this is, this is essentially, we might say, this is kind of gossip. Peter's got a whole story for them. And what have they heard? You went in and ate with uncircumcised men. Nothing about the Holy Spirit upon them. Nothing about preaching the gospel. Nothing about the angel. Nothing about two angels bringing two men together to bring the gospel to them. None of that is there. You went in, that's the only thing they see. You went and ate with the wrong kind of people. You went in and ate potentially the wrong kind of food. And in verses 4 through 16, Peter recounts this whole story, his own vision, Cornelius' vision. The Lord brings him together. And in the course of preaching, of course, they believe, and the Holy Spirit falls upon them. Now, I think the most notable piece of this section is in verse 16, when Peter recounts or recalls the words of the Lord, which are in Acts 1.5. Then I remembered, verse 16, how I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This is our Lord's words that he is recalling to them. Do you remember, brethren, when Jesus said the Holy Spirit's going to fall upon you not many days from now? This is what he's bringing to mind. So he's basically tying his direct experience, this exact event, with what the Lord said was going to happen. Now, the Lord didn't give any detail. He just said, the Holy Spirit's going to fall upon you. Okay, that happened in Acts 2. Wait, that also happened in Acts 3. Oh, and it also happened in Acts chapter 8 with the Samaritans. Oh, and now it happened in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius and his family. Now, maybe it's not immediately evident in your mind, but notice that the Holy Spirit shall fall upon you. Who is the you in chapter 1, verse 5. Well, it's clearly referring to the 12, primarily first. But then it's expanded to the 120. Then it's expanded to the 3,000 that are converted. Then it's extended, you, to the Samaritans. And now, oh, guess what? The circle of you is getting bigger. See, the church is growing. The word of God is multiplying. And so when we read this, let's not miss this. The Holy Spirit shall fall upon you. Who's you? Well, now it's a lot more people than just you personally. This is not a personal gift to the apostles. This is not just for Jewish believers. Jesus has already said, both in Acts and in the Gospels, we recall the words in Matthew chapter 28, if we're going to harmonize all this, that I'm going to send you out, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world, all that other stuff. It's kind of like Jerusalem, Judea, and then everywhere else. That's how they viewed the world. The world was Jerusalem. The world was Judea. The gospel is not limited to that, though. It is meant to and is expanding. Peter is simply telling them this was what God said was going to happen. Now, it didn't happen in the way that they thought it was going to happen. Because remember, even in chapter 1, their response was, well, is this the time you're going to make, you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Are you going to put the Jews and, and our kingdom back on top? And Jesus said, that's not really for you to decide. You need to go out and be witnesses me. And that's what Peter was doing. And that's what they've been doing. Not just Peter, of course, but he's a representative of the apostles. So this is exactly what our Lord said would happen, and Peter is bringing to their minds that that is what is happening. 
The other thing I would point out to you as well is this highlights the differences between John's baptism and that of the Holy Spirit. You see, John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, if you will, uh, he, was, he was really the last Old Testament prophet. Our Lord Jesus stands between both of those. He's bridging the gap. John is not a New Testament prophet. John is preaching an Old Testament gospel. He's paving the way. He's the last one. Long line of prophets. John is standing there saying, I am that one that Isaiah prophesied. I am that one that's basically clearing out the path. The Messiah is right upon you. But I'm only baptizing with water. He's going to baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. This gets a little bit into what, and not, not to scare anybody with t- technical language, this is a little bit of sacramental theology here. Because John's baptism was representative of the Old Testament. The sacraments did what? Well, circumcision was a cutting away. It was a cutting off to symbolize cutting off that sin nature. But guess what it doesn't give? It's not positive. It only just cuts off. They still have to get their righteousness. That's why baptism is actually is not just a washing, but it's also a pouring out and applying Christ's righteousness to us. We're going to see this again in Acts chapter 19 when they meet believers who only had John's baptism. You haven't been baptized with the Holy Spirit? We haven't even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. So it's still not enough. John's baptism is not enough. The Old Testament is not enough. You need more. So the remission, the removal, the washing of sins is only half of salvation. If we only had our sins wiped out, we would only be brought to zero with God. We still need righteousness. And so our sacraments represent that full righteousness. We do confess our sins, and you should be when we come to the table. But we're also thanking God for the righteousness which he provides in Christ. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It does both. It washes away our sin. It gives us Christ's righteousness, all appropriated by faith. Now, this is all, of course, wrapped up in, I think, what Peter is saying here. John indeed baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with with the Holy Spirit. The you being this larger group of believers, uh, at the time, clearly undefined, but now Peter's saying it does include Cornelius and his family, despite the fact that they're Gentiles. I know that seems weird. I know that seems strange. Now, to them, if you, if you think it sounds strange to us, it must have been really strange to them. <clears throat> All right. Peter concludes in verses 17 and 18, if therefore, he's concluding a statement, that if God gave them this gift, well, we'll just read verse 17. If therefore God gave them The same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I that I could withstand God? Indeed. You know what, Lord? I really don't think that these people need to have the Holy Spirit. Have you ever thought that way? Have I ever thought that way? These people just don't really deserve the gospel. This is a rebuke. And Peter is, in some respect, not really rebuking them directly because they respond very positively. But indeed, who am I? Who is Peter to contend with God? This is God's work, as I said at the beginning. The book is named the Acts of the Apostles, but the primary character is the Holy Spirit. He is the mover. 
He is the one who's doing. He's the man. He's the, he's the person who's moving Cornelius to go call for Peter and Peter to say, go with him. He's sending out the apostles. He sends persecution and scatters them and they begin to preach the gospel everywhere. To give away the end, as I've said before, in Acts chapter 28, when Paul is chained in his house, the word of God is not chained. It gives us hope that despite the outward circumstances, God's, God's word is multiplying and going out with power, even in human weakness. Who am I to withstand or contend with God? And in verse 18, they agree because they fall silent. Who's going to make an argument against God? What, what was Job's response when God questioned him? I'm going to cover my mouth. I don't have anything to say. Job, these things are too far above you. I couldn't explain to you. It would just blow your mind, Job. And Job says, yeah, you're right. You're right. They say essentially the same thing by their silence. But they don't remain silent. That's their initial response. You can imagine all kind of thoughts going through their head. Because the paradigm has been broken. <laughs> the paradigm has been broken. One of the things that came to my mind last night, or yesterday when I was preparing for this, is the old, the new wine and old wineskins. This, this is part of that experience, right? We need new wineskins because the New Testament, the Holy Spirit, is not going to fit in those old wineskins. I'm sure there's a hundred thoughts. It's not, I think it's implied here to some degree. It is for me anyway, and it should be for us, is that there is a significant paradigm shift in their minds um, and we take it for granted because we happen to be on the 2,000-year receiving end of this in a good way. Uh, but for them, this was paradigm-shaking, breaking. But in response, they glorify God. They praise God. They give God the glory. The Gentiles have been granted repentance. You do realize repentance is a gift. When you repent, God has given you the ability to do that. You don't conjure that up on your own. I think I'll repent today. I think I won't. We've been given, as our confession says, an evangelical grace of repentance. And they are acknowledging that here. The Gentiles have been granted repentance unto life. So they acknowledge that. Now, I do want to stop us just for the moment just to point out to that there is no dispute here at this point about the end of where they were going. In other words, they've been given a gift. It's indisputable. They've, they've closed their mouth. They've glorified God. They closed their mouth against the actual event and said, well, okay, praise God, he's now granted these Gentiles repentance of the life. What is not yet resolved, which we will see in Acts chapter 15, is the means by how you come there. Because the very contention in Acts chapter 15 is you must they must be circumcised and they must follow the Old Testament law to get there. So the end is not in dispute, but how they get there is still in dispute. So this is not resolved here, and the church will still have to work through this, and we will see this in a couple chapters from now. But for the time being, simply note that the end is not disputed. Um, but the means by which they get there are not fully resolved. I would also say in our own, by way of application, I would say that when new believers come in, we need to check 
ourselves to make sure that, well, they haven't adopted our cultural norms, right? They haven't adopted our dietary stuff. They haven't adopted our homeschooling or our political views. Those are peripheral issues to the gospel. That, that comes with maturity. That's not to say they're unimportant, but they're not the same thing. This is the challenge that we have, right? Because we're in the same boat. Wait a minute, these people, th th those people are coming to the gospel? Well, tomorrow they should look just like us and talk just like us. Oh, no. There's a maturity that has to come with that. This is why the early church struggled with Jew and Gentile to some degree. I want to talk, the, the, the rest of the text actually does address this um, later in the narrative here. But new believers are not always going to conform to our adopted norms, which are probably good and necessary consequences to some degree. But we need to make sure that, like the Pharisees, we don't make those part of gospel belief. To be a Christian, you have to hold this political view or this particular thing. There's clearly things that are outside that are heretical, are bad conclusions. And then there's things that's like, well, this is probably a matter of indifference. Let's not make those things the dividing line. We cannot make those things the dividing line. For those of you who were here a couple years ago when Mark Bube, who's the uh, foreign missionary com uh, commissioner, or whatever title they, they have for him, but uh, he came and gave a missionary presentation about a group of uh, Indians in India, Northeast India, and they were kind of distinct from the rest of the continent. Um, but they had received the gospel, and they had a bunch of slides, and, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here. And if he happens to be listening, I apologize for not giving the full story. Um, but the point is, is that he was saying is that the first generation of believers were happy to receive Christ. The second generation of believers began homegrown elders. So they weren't no longer dependent upon the outside teachers from the OPC and other places to have elders for them. The third generation started talking about how do we build a seminary? How do we start training our own men? That's Christian maturity. That's the growth of the church. That's what we should be aiming for. See, they had been there, and they'd had the gospel for a number of years so that they were able to do that. That's not going to happen to the first generation. That's one of the challenges that we as Presbyterians have in particular. If we want homegrown elders, guess what? We've got to have men who know, believe these things. And I've kind of wrestled, and I still haven't come to a full conclusion on how the early church did this to some degree. They must have had crash course seminary stuff going on for their elders. Um, different topic, but the idea is that these new believers are not always going to conform, but they will come into maturity because clearly they're brought into the kingdom. And we will see this later uh, after Paul's missionary journeys and during those missionary journeys. We're going to see some of the responses. Now in, 19, in verses 19 through 21, we are now going all the way back to chapter 8. Because it says, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose after Stephen... So we're after Stephen's death. People have been scattered. Remember, that was just stated as a fact. We immediately go to Philip preaching the gospel in Samaria. We see the conversion of Saul in chapter 9. We see Saul now confounding the Jews there in Damascus and elsewhere coming back in. But we've kind of, and then we have Cornelius. So we've got this long narrative that interrupts. Well, what happened to these people that were scattered? Well, now we find out. In 19 through 21, we see that these scattered believers are preaching the gospel, but they are only preaching the gospel to the Jews. They are limiting, and again, this was how the early church did things. Uh, this is, by the way, what Paul meant in Romans when he says, 
first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. The reason that they does that is not because they're better, it's because they had the covenant promises. They had the word of God. They already had those things. That's why it came to them first. But God did not intend to neglect the Gentiles. It was just a matter of timing. So they are preaching the gospel only to the Jews in whatever locale that they find themselves. But verse 20, we see that some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene. Cyprus, of course, is an island in the Mediterranean. Cyrene is loosely where Libya would be in North Africa. And these men say, you know what? We're going to expand this out a little bit, and we're going to preach to the Hellenists. Now, remember what I said before. The Hellenists were Greek-speaking adopters of the Jewish religion. Okay? We'll talk about this in just a minute. But they begin preaching the gospel, speaking the Lord Jesus to the Hellenists, And, of course, the response is very positive. And the hand of the Lord was with them, verse 21, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So the Lord blesses their activity to the Hellenists, to these people who would not normally, the gospel would have gone, at least in that early time of the church. So it's not been quite moving on to Gentiles in the... um, We might say the full-blown Gentile, but it is going out to those who the gospel would have not normally gone to to some degree, especially outside of Jerusalem. There were Hellenists there in Jerusalem. Those are the ones that were targets of persecution. Don't want to recover all that, uh, recover all that ground. But notice the church in Jerusalem. Now, this is pretty significant. Then the news of these things, verse 22, came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. I hope you feel the weight of this. It doesn't just come to the ears of the apostles. They now have elders. They now have church governors that are independent of the apostles. They are working together. But the apostles are not the bishops declaring from on high what thus and such should be. They have other elders there. They have the church. The church is not just the twelve. The church is just not a handful of men. The church is many. It's a plurality. And the church, in response to hearing that these Hellenists are getting the gospel, they send Barnabas out to encourage them. Remember, Barnabas is the son of encouragement. And they send Barnabas. They see the grace of God. They see the grace of God from afar. They send Barnabas to preach the gospel to encourage them. And mainly just to encourage them, verse 23, when he came and he'd seen the grace of God, and he was glad, and he encouraged them that with one purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. And then a personal testimony of Barnabas is given in verse 24. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. More increase and more increase and more increase. See, the church is growing and expanding, not just in numerical numbers, but now in the expression of faith in these various peoples. Now, I find this particularly compelling, that the elders at Jerusalem do not send a Judean believer to them. They send Barnabas, who is from where? Cyprus. Barnabas is from Cyprus. He is not Judean. 
I find that really, really compelling that they send a man who would have been much more readily identified with them and vice versa. They send an emissary that's not going to be a hostile face. We've already seen the, the party of the circumcision is a little unsure about what's going on with these Gentiles and these people that are slightly outside. And in response, now he is a, a Levite. We've already found out that in chapter 4 that Barnabas is a Levite from the country of Cyprus. So he's clearly part of the dispersion. But he's not a Judean in the sense that Peter is. He's not a Judean in the sense that James or the other apostles were. They were, as Paul would say of himself, the Hebrew of Hebrews, right? Paul himself, though, is actually from Tarsus. That's a different story. We'll get to that in time. My point is, though, as I find it very compelling that they send Barnabas um, to minister to them and encourage them. They're not neglecting the grace at all. They're basically saying, let's send a man who we know is going to encourage them. He's going to give them the gospel, but he's a friendly face, as it were. It's not going to be one of these, the party of the circumcision, who, by the way, Paul is going to contend with in Galatians. Who, you know, who told you to believe another gospel? Barnabas doesn't do that at all. He encourages them in the Lord. He rejoices to see what he has, encourages them to do even more. Continuing on in verse 25 and 26, we see Barnabas goes a little bit further and he departs for Tarsus to seek Saul. Now, Tarsus is really what we, in Turkey, um, by the way, Antioch is uh, Antioch in Syria here. There's two Antiochs in the Bible. Um, one of them is Pisidia, which is kind of in what we now also call Turkey. Turkey's a, a big country in Asia Minor, um, for those of you who don't know your geography. Um, um, but Paul, Saul is in Tarsus. Now, you might ask yourself, wait a minute, what is Saul hiding away in Tarsus for? What, what's he doing? Is he taking a break? Is he on vacation? We don't, we don't know. The answer is we don't know. But I do find it very interesting that Saul has not put himself forward. Saul is not saying, hey, I had a vision. Hey, listen to me. Look at me. I, I got a special thing. I was visited by the Lord Jesus. Look at me. Any interviews? I keep a blog. I'm going to talk about my experiences. No, Saul is actually going back to his home country. He stays there, probably studying, maybe doing some ministry there. We don't know for sure. But Barnabas says, all right, I got to go get, I got to go get Saul. It's time to go get Saul. And he goes and looks for him. And, and again, he has to look for them. He's not like at a known address. Where's Saul? All right, let's go back and find his people, and then we'll find Saul. And sure enough, he does find him. And when he had found him, verse 26, he brings him to Antioch, so that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. They go on a one-year, I mean, the elders, remember the elders of Jerusalem are the ones who originally commissioned Barnabas to go, go help the people in Antioch. And Saul concludes after some time, or Barnabas concludes, I need to have Saul here. I need to get Saul. Remember, Barnabas is also the one who introduced Saul to the apostles because no one believed his conversion. So for a whole year they assemble with the church and they teach a great many people. And then the zinger here at the end of verse 26. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. You see, up to this point, 
the believers by and large have been members of what has been derisively referred to as what? As the way. But is that even really true anymore because of the Samaritans coming in, because of the Gentiles coming in, and because of all these other people coming in? Well, now Christianity, as we now could say, is breaking out of that old wineskin. There's a new wineskin, and it's called Christianity. Now put your finger here and turn back with me very quickly to Isaiah chapter 62. I only want to cover this very briefly because I think, well, I'll tell you what I think after I read these two passages. Isaiah 62, 2. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. Turn to 65, Isaiah 65, verse 15. You shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen. For the Lord God will slay you and call his servants by another name. I am personally convinced that Saul, through his extensive knowledge of the Old Testament, revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that this is the new name of the church. The church is no longer going to be identified with the Jews. It's no longer going to be identified with Judaism. Christians, Christ followers, little Christs, that's who they are. That's who we are. In Antioch, this place where you have Jew and Hellenist Jews that are believing. We're a new body. We're distinct. We are separate. But not the same way that Judaism was. I think God names us through the apostle here. Notice that they were there for a full year. In verses 27 through 30 and concluding here, we see that in these days there's prophets that come from Jerusalem to Antioch. Um, Prophets in the sense, especially in the book of Acts, you need to think of them a little bit like the Old Testament prophet, but more like preachers. So they kind of stand this middle ground because they are making prophecies as we see Agabus making a prophecy. But primarily when you hear prophecy, when you read about prophecy in the scripture, it's really talking about preaching. But remember, they didn't have the whole word of God. And so their preaching functions a little bit different because now they're making predictive. By the way, the same thing will be said of Paul later on when he's going back to Jerusalem. Just like this belt is tying up, this is what's going to happen to Paul. He makes also a (coughs) prediction of prophecy. In this case, these prophets come. Now notice, the church in Jerusalem is doing what? They're encouraging the believers. Let's go send some brothers to go preach to them. Let's go send some other preachers to them to encourage them. And they do, to encourage and instruct them. (coughs) And one of them, Agabus, by the Spirit, shows that there's going to be a great famine, which indeed did happen during the days of Claudius. Um, So what's the test of a prophet, by the way? 100% 100% accuracy. He said it. He's a man that has been gifted by God to say this. And in response to predicting this future event, they don't say this is an interesting sideshow. Boy, that's kind of interesting. Something bad's going to happen. No, they say we need to prepare. And that's what they do. Verse 29, then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. So the Judeans are sending ministers and pastors to those in Antioch, and Antioch say what? We're going to send gifts back to the church in Jerusalem, in Judea. 
and they do so by the hands to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So the Antiochian believers are collecting and sending relief to their brethren in Judea. Oh, wow. Wow. Fellowship in Christ. Two different locations, two different kinds of believers, as it were, outwardly, but they are functioning together. Now notice that they're not blurred or amalgamated necessarily, but they are certainly recognize each other in Christ. And they send this relief to <clears throat> the elders by the hands of Saul and Barnabas. In addition to my comments that I just said about Saul laboring somewhat quietly off the edges here, he's also now running an errand. <laughs> so Saul is not exactly taking the prominent seat. He's taken the lower seat. Saul is not in, humanly speaking, the driver's seat quite yet. Just like Moses had to spend 40 years in Desert University before he was ready to lead Israel. His training in Egypt was not sufficient. He had to go to the desert. He had to go to this outward place before he was fully ready to do ministry. And we see the same thing in Saul. Now, I want to take the last five minutes here and talk very briefly about chapter 12. And the reason being is because I've already taught on this. Uh, I asked Alex to put my lesson from last year uh, in this series. So if you want to go back and see what I said about this in full, please do so. Um, Acts chapter 12. Uh, I was kind of filling in for someone during Sunday school and felt like it was a uh, necessary um, lesson to, for us to heed. Uh, and very, very much brief, we see uh, in chapter 12, we see Herod Agrippa. It doesn't say Herod Agrippa, but it is Herod Agrippa. Uh, the grandson of Sarah the Great is uh, basically, probably at the prompting of the Jews, goes after the church. So now we see more persecution. It's pretty significant because it's the first time in the New Testament that we see the state going after the church. Up to this point, it's only been the religious leader. Now we see them, uh, the state is now harnessed against the church. And he kills James, and he puts Peter in prison. So this is pretty significant. This is two of the three inner circle. John is the other. Uh, one of them is killed. One is them in prison. It's very dark days um, against them. So the situation looks pretty grim. Peter, in the course of, he just goes to sleep in the jail. He's not, he's not worried at all. Uh, and an angel kicks him on the side and says, time to get up. And he has to get dressed and goes out. He thinks he's having a vision. Then he finds himself outside of the jail and say, wait, this wasn't a vision? Uh, what happened? So he goes, presents himself to the believers there, and of course they're like, <laughs> you're seeing things. He tells the little serving girl, um, Rhoda, who's not believed. Anyway, um, he goes back to the church. He testifies to the miracle, and Peter disappears kind of off the scene. We won't see Peter again uh, really until Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council, and even there he doesn't play a prominent role. So Peter's moving off the stage. By the way, as I said before, men come on and off the stage. The Holy Spirit is the one who continues to work. Because I have news for you, every one of us in this room is not going to be here at some point on earth. But the church will continue. The church will continue. doesn't matter whether you're 16 or whether you're 76, right? Whether your time on this earth is short or long, the church will continue. At the same time, at the end of chapter 12, we see Herod struck by an angel. So whereas Peter is preserved and protected, we see Herod struck and killed by the angel. But the response, of course, 
is in verse 24, but the word of God grew and multiplied. That theme continues to develop in ways that perhaps we did not expect in chapter 1. Now, if you've read the whole book of Acts, you know this. But of course, if you're living in the narrative, do we expect that in our own day, by the way? We kind of do know the end, but there's a lot in between that we don't, right? And so our tendency is to do what? It's to doubt, it's to be fearful, to say, well, how is going to, can the Lord do this? Will he do this? Well, he's going to do it in his own time. Is he able to do it? No one would deny that. But will he do it? Well, he will do it in his own time, in his own way. And verse 24 in particular, and we will pick up next week in verse 25 of chapter 12 and move all the way through 13, which is why I wanted to cover this very briefly today. But this is a kind of conclusion to this section in Acts, this narrative, because now we're going to begin to shift things to Saul, also called Paul. And the shi- the, the, we're going to see the gospel now go out even further. And now... Paul's calling as the apostle of the Gentiles will now be made manifest. Up to this point, Saul has been off scene. He's been doing something else. He was in Damascus for a while. He was in Jerusalem for a short time. We know that according to Galatians, he was in Arabia. And now we find him in Tarsus, and he's now back with the church at Antioch. We'll have a lot more to say about that here in the coming weeks. All right, that was a whirlwind of 11, and especially so of 12. Any questions or comments before I close this out here? I don't think it was that thorough, but you can talk to me after. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that your word testifies to the fact that you have sent your Holy Spirit to redeem a people for yourself. Father, we thank you that your word testifies that our Lord Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sinners and that indeed by faith we can have remission of sins and we can have his perfect righteousness. Help us to live in accordance with those things that you've laid out in your word. Help us to serve you in our respective callings, in our families. We do ask, especially on this day that you've set apart for us to rest and worship, that we would put aside all of those lawful things and that we would be wholly devoted to those heavenly things, those heavenly realities, which in many respects, they are higher. They are the ultimate reality. And so even as we plod through difficult circumstances and uncertain times, Father, help us to be refreshed and encouraged, especially so today. We pray that in the next hour that you would receive our worship. We ask this for the sake of Jesus. Amen.